This morning we're going to be looking at a humble servant. John 13, and um, hopefully you do have a Bible with you. Um, I know we live in a technology age, but I just prefer pages, and I like to hear pages turning, so um, if you choose to use your phone or iPad or whatever it is, I'm not going to hate you for that, but it, you know, I like to hear pages turning, um, and, and you're going to want to hold one in your hand today. And you're going to want your Bible drill scale skills, because uh, we're going to be flipping to a lot of different texts. Um, and some of them are lengthy, so they're not on the screens. So you're going to have to turn to them. Actually, I don't think I put any of the scripture except the main passage on the screen. So uh, hope your fingers are good and warm. Okay. All right, but John 13, I want to I pray for us um, right off the bat this morning before um, we dive in. Our Father, we are so thankful, God, that you give us your word and that you allow us to freely come and proclaim your word. And I pray, Father, in full trust that as your word goes forth, it will not return void. God, you know who we are. You know where we are. And so my prayer this week and, and this morning is that through the working of your spirit, your word today will just go into each and every one of our lives so that we would be able to see you more clearly. For some, maybe it's that we would come to faith in you. For some, it may, we just may be in a dry place and we just need to be encouraged by the good news of Christ Jesus. But whatever the case, Father, we ask that you would just meet us here. And then as we work through these different passages, God, that we would ultimately come face to face with really the holiness of who you are. So that in light of who you are, we might see a reflection of our sin. And be all the more rejoicing at the grace that washes our sins away. We ask that you would bless the reading of your word and that you would find honor in our time together. And we ask all of this to the praise of your glorious grace. Amen. John 13. So the truth, uh, the reality, that Jesus is a very different kind of king is ever before us. We have kind of been seeing this theme over the last, really, probably month or so, right? Um, even going back to um, December and the Advent, seeing um, the good news and seeing how Jesus is good news, but He's bringing good news and that He is a simply just a different kind of king than the people were looking for, than they were longing for, but that doesn't mean he's not what they needed. In fact, it was the opposite. He was exactly what they and we needed. And his purpose in creation, his purpose in redemption, his purpose in ministry is all to reveal his unfathomable love for his people. And in John 13, Specifically, the beginning of where we'll be today, we see that right up front as it accounts Jesus washing his disciples' feet. When I said that, some of you probably started looking around looking for a wash basin. <laughs> I'm not going to wash your feet today, so you can rest easy. But we're going to look at Jesus washing the disciples' feet. 
And what we're going to see is that in his washing of their feet, in, in this act of washing their feet, that true love leads to humble service. True love leads to humble service. And, and I want you to just think about those few words as we work through this text. Because we know that Jesus is the very definition of true love, right? And the very first point that we come to in this text, starting in John 13, verse 1, is we see the love of Jesus. Now, again, for some time, Jesus had been telling his disciples, his followers, of his coming death. That his end was coming near, right? But it's here in verse 13, um, chapter 13, verse 1, where we really find clarity on some of that. He says, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, not was coming, right? Not not any longer. It's not coming anymore. It had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. What's interesting about verse 1 of chapter 13 is it's almost like an intro to chapters 13, verses 17. Right, So we know that this is the last few days of Jesus' life. We, we know that the end is near. And verse chapter 12 was sort of a bridge between the first half of John and the latter half of John. And now, right here in verse 13, as we begin this new wave of um, the ministry of Jesus, the life of Jesus, we see right here in verse 1 this kind of introduction to what we'll be in through the next few months. And Jesus speaking and and acting with the authority of heaven, knows it is his time. Again, I want you to just follow this language, right? Now, before the Feast of Passover, and we'll get to that in here in just a moment, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, he knew, right? He knew his time had come. These are not accidental circumstances. They are, in fact, part of God's intended purpose. They were part of God's plan from the very beginning. That all creation had been leading them to this very moment. There are many times in our lives where we think, um, why did that happen? Or how did that happen? Or if this would have happened differently, we would have ended up at a different place. But you need to know this. That God is working all things together for good. Everything that happens in our life, both good and bad, are for His purpose. And much of that purpose, especially for those who trust in Him, are to refine us. To make us into the image of Jesus. So that we would experience His grace and rest in His glory. Nothing's happening by accident. It is all part of God's plan. All of creation had been leading to this very moment. Now again, it says now before the feast of the Passover. The Passover was this huge celebration and festival that dated back. And it was a time to remember for the Jewish folks to remember um, Israel's saving act of through God. In Egypt, where they would offer the sacrificial lamb, right? They would sacrifice the paschal lamb. I don't know if I said that right, but that's how I'm saying it. They would, they would sacrifice the lamb, and they would take the blood of the lamb, and they would paint it over their doorpost, so that when the angel of death came, it would pass over their homes, and their children, their firstborn, would be saved. Now, again, I said that nothing happens by accident. Because Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He becomes the ultimate sacrificial Lamb. And when Jesus comes, there's no need to sacrifice anymore. There's no need for the painting of the doorpost. There's no need to seek self-atonement for sin. Jesus comes to be that. And His hour had come. His death was imminent. And He knew that. But he also knew that his time, his ministry was not finished yet. 
And so in one sort of final act of true love before his betrayal, he washes his disciples' feet. And if you notice at the end of verse 1, it says he loved them to the very end. That's kind of an odd addition to that line. But when we really begin to think, what, what we come to see clearly is that he's simply referring to the cross. He's referring to the end of his physical life before that sacrificial death. That he would love them to the point of death. He would not stop. He would not give up. That he would persevere to the very end. Trusting the plan of the Father. Submitting to the will of the Father. Remember in the garden he prayed, God, if it be your will, let this cup pass. He knew what was coming. But he said, but... It's not my will, but yours be done. And so during supper, we see in verses 2 and 3, Jesus beginning to prepare himself for washing the feet also knows a few other things. Let's look at verse 2 and 3. So during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So Jesus knows Judas' condition. He knows his heart. He knows what is about to take place. No one else, everyone is completely oblivious at this point, right? They probably knew, like, something's off about Judas, but he could just be different, right? I mean, we're all different. We all have our own quirks and our own um, just different things about us, but they, they probably understood that something was a little odd about Judas, but they probably had no clue. In fact, they, they did not have a clue. It's not a probably. They, they knew not what was coming, but Jesus did. He knew Judas' condition, but he also knew something else. He knew his purpose was to fulfill God's plan for redeeming his people. And he gives them a picture of what that will look like as he washes their feet. Now, now again, this is one of those things that kind of hides in the background to me that I've never really seen before. Jesus knows his death is coming. He knows he only has a few days left. He knows that his life is about to end. Yet what is he doing? He's serving them. Now, if you knew that you were going to die in just a few days, what would you do? You ever seen the movie Bucket List? Like you forsake all things to just pursue what you want to do. Like You want to finish strong, you're going to do your thing, and you're going to seek those things that you've wanted to do your whole life. There's nothing that's going to stop you. Like We're, we're going to finish it. But Jesus, instead of doing that, he's actually serving the people he loves. He's putting himself down. And so when we see in verse 4 and 5 that he's preparing to wash their feet, what we see is that he actually takes on the lowest possible menial form of servanthood. They were in the desert. A dusty not very clean place, and they walked everywhere wearing sandals, right? There also weren't any kind of laws on picking up animal feces, right? It's not like they had little canisters with little bags to scoop up the animal's feces so you can tie it up real nice and and dispose of it cleanly. So these men are walking up and down, traveling on these nasty roads, getting disgusting and it was a cultural thing like a hospitable thing to wash the feet of your guest but you didn't do it you had a servant or a slave to do it and only in the poorest of poor homes would the youngest youngest jewish child actually be commanded to do it because most cases they wouldn't even do it at all it would have to be a gentile servant or slave and yet we see jesus taking the form of that servant, a slave, and putting himself down to wash their feet. Even the feet of Judas. Now again, Jesus knew what was coming. 
Right? We just read that. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. But yet he washes their feet anyway. What a beautiful foreshadowing of the cross. That the one who had no right to be serving anyone would serve the greatest need of his people. That he would go to Calvary's cross to cleanse the sin of his people. Hold your finger in John 13 and go to the right to Philippians chapter 2. And some of these texts, you're going to be like, man, we read these all the time. I mean, I'm not going to waste my time turning there. Please do. Because I want you to see what takes place in these texts that we're going to be bouncing around. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. I still hear, hear some turning. So if you're like caught up in those like Galatians, Ephesians ones, like General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, right? That's, that's, how, that's how I've always remembered it. You might have another little thing to do it, but I'm just, that's what helps me. So help you get there. All right, I don't hear any more pages turning. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The ultimate act of humility. The king of glory, the creator of all things. Universe on top of universe on top of universe becomes a man. And comes to us with one purpose, to die. And in this room, gathered around this table, we see Jesus taking on the form of a servant. Again, foreshadowing what was coming. Now, I don't have a doubt in my mind that the disciples would have quickly washed the feet of Jesus. But it's Jesus washing their feet. They didn't take the initiative to lower themselves. Jesus did. He's the one who tied the towel around his waist. He's the one that went down to the floor and grabbed the basin. And in so doing, we catch simply a glimpse of what it will be like for Jesus to wash away the filth of sin. To cleanse them from the nastiest Thing about them. Now again, culturally, this was a big no-no. This was only meant for the most menial servants. And here we see Jesus loving them so much that he goes and he washes their feet. And as I was looking at this, it kind of made me think about something that I see a lot of with Christians. We have this tendency to kind of boast in who we are. But how often do we let our salvation or our faith or, or more or less our claim to be the people of God, to be a reason for boasting when in reality it should be driving us to the floor? We assume that we're the people of God, so we carry ourselves on another level. 
like we're blessed and highly favored. No. We're broken, sinful, jacked up people who have only experienced the grace of Christ that others need to experience. So let our boast be in the cross. I know that you have heard me quote Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 until you're probably almost tired of hearing Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but there's a reason that those verses just mean so much to me because I know myself. I know my pride and my arrogance and it's a constant battle for me. But to know that God saves me, not that I'm saving myself so that I can't boast about it, is so freeing. That it's God who saves. That it's God who redeems. That it's God in Christ who washes our sin away. And so Jesus puts his ultimate and unusual love on display for his people as a servant. And he shows us the true example of true love. And that's number two. The example of Jesus. Look at verses 6 through 10. He came then to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, I have a, a very close friend in ministry who uh, recently was going through kind of um, the core values of their church, right? the, the things that would um, set them kind of apart in their area. And, and they... What he would do is he would preach on Sunday and then their Wednesday night gathering. Leading up to that, he would um, kind of prepare them to hear that sermon. So they were coming to servanthood. So service was one of their core values. And so he texts me and it was like, what you think about foot washing? And so we had a conversation and he texted me back later and he was like, bro, you got to do that. So nobody knew it was happening except him and his wife. And because um, in case you don't know this, if I announce, hey, we're having a foot washing service, probably not many of y'all would show up. I don't know what it is, but that's just kind of what people do. Like, oh, no, I ain't. And, and so he did this. And he said it was the most moving thing that he had ever really been a part of in a service. And so all I could think when I was kind of going through this was I'm sure that room was probably similar Shocked, in awe, nervous, quiet. Not a lot of noise, not a lot of talking, just amazement, right? I mean, imagine, right? You're in a room, just a handful of us, with Jesus. And he has completely broken the cultural molds. And he has sat down with a water basin to wash our feet. And then all of a sudden, Peter's just like, wait a minute. Why are you washing my feet? And that's where we pick up. Verse 6. Verse 8, sorry. Check that. Verse 6, I was right. Lord, do you what? It's, the print's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and I feel like I have a decent eye doctor. But... Uh, <laughs> But it just gets smaller and smaller. And anyway, verse 6. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now. But afterward you will understand. I feel like Peter heard that a lot in his life. So Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Isn't it pretty brazen of Peter, which this is not unusual, right? It's not like Peter, this is a one-time occurrence where Peter speaks to the king of glory, basically saying, you don't know what you're doing. Um, 
But just once again, like this is at the end of Jesus' ministry. Peter's been going at this for three years, and he's still arguing with Jesus. So Jesus answered and he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. And so Peter has this moment where he's objecting to what Jesus is doing. But what we see throughout Scripture is is not simply that we're hearing of the love of God. We're not only hearing that God loves His people, we see it constantly on display. And here, as Jesus is washing His disciples' feet, we see the love and humility again and again as His example as the King of glory. And so then, again, Jesus makes His way to Peter. Peter obnoxiously speaks up. But Peter is missing the point. It's not simply that Jesus is washing their feet right here in the present. It's, again, it's pointing to something much greater. How often, again, is that what occurs in our life where we only see the base layer? We only see what's happening in the here and now, and we question God's plan, and we push back against God's ways, and we demand God to do something different. Only years later, or perhaps even a few moments later to realize how foolish we were as we see God's hand working constantly within us to accomplish something much greater than we could ever have imagined. So Peter's like, why are you washing my feet? But There's a far greater significance here. Because as Jesus washes their feet with water from the basin, so will he cleanse their hearts from sin with the His blood from the cross. It is God and God alone who saves through the work of Jesus. We can't cleanse ourselves of sin. We can't be good enough. And I know you hear me say that over and over and over, and I'm I'm just going to kind of be stubborn, kind of like George Whitfield. He would go from moment to moment preaching the same passage. You must be born again. And finally, there was a story of this um, little old lady who come up to him and kind of demanded, when are you going to preach something else? Why do you always preach the same thing? And so he just looked at her and said, you must be born again. We are in a culture where we think that we can just do things on our own and, and we don't need the help of another But the sad reality is, and the truth is, is that we cannot save ourselves. It is only through the gift of grace, through Jesus Christ. And we have to remember that His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Higher are His ways above ours. And God has a plan. He's the omniscient one, not us. He is the one who has orchestrated all things. And he is the one who speaks and moves by the word of his power. And yet constantly we act as Peter and say, Lord, what are you doing? When he ultimately has a greater purpose. See, this was God's plan. From the very beginning, it was God's plan. Hold your finger in John 13, go left to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. Again, another passage that's probably not new to you. And I know we could have picked out just one or two verses and probably hit the point, but there's something about reading the whole, t- whole thing sometimes that just gives you the full weight of what's taking place. And so if you don't know the backstory of Isaiah, which you probably do because I told it to you last week, um, <laughs> Isaiah was written over 700 years before Christ was ever born. And most scholars recognize Isaiah, as, they call it the fifth gospel. Again, hundreds of years before Jesus is ever born. Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He's obviously talking about Jesus. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. If, if that don't mess you up. In case you don't remember this big part of Easter. When Jesus was crucified. He was buried in a rich man's borrowed tomb. Second half of verse 9. Although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, and, and I want you to see this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities therefore I will divide him with a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of the many and makes intercession for the transgressors It was God's plan from the very beginning. People want to question, like, why did God allow sin to enter the world and when it was such a perfect creation? This, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Although they had sinned and although they were like sheep who have gone astray, he, he crushed his own son. And in him covers the iniquity of us all. And that's where we find ourselves. Constantly misunderstanding what God is doing in our lives. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I've had moments where I've cried out to God demanding answers. Completely just pushed back on what was going on in my life. I'll never forget. In January 24th, I believe it was. Allison and I had just come back from the very first church plant conference we were ever going to go to. Just seeing, is this what God would have us do? And it was such a refreshing time. Um, and, and she would tell you this if, if she was in here, but she didn't want to go. We were kind of tussling about 
what God was calling us to do at the moment. But me being extremely stubborn, had already purchased the tickets without asking her if she wanted to go. But we went, and we come home, and that night, we found out that she was pregnant. Talking about a weird circumstance. All right, Lord, we feel like you're calling us to something where we're probably not going to have a thing. Oh, by the way, you're pregnant. That was in January 2010, right? And not long after that, we found out we were not only pregnant, but we thought our doctor was pulling a fast one on us. And he was like, all right, you see that? And we're like, yeah. And so he moves around. You know, we've never done this before. And then we hear, and he's like, you see that? And we're like, yeah. He's like, so you see too, right? I was like, wait a minute. And, and he was a friend of the family, so we actually thought he was just kind of cutting up with us a little bit. No, we were pregnant with twins. And we were like, okay, God, you have called us to do something outrageous. We're very young. We have no clue we're doing. And now we're pregnant with twins? But we were just kind of staying the course, and we were going to do it anyway. And we started to get really excited. And in March... March 9th, we went back, and uh, nothing. And that's the most devastated I had ever been in my life. I'd gotten past the shock and the, like, how in the world? I don't even really like kids, and I'm about to have two at one time. I was, we were just destroyed. And, um... There was a lot of pain for a while. And, and to be honest, I, I think a lot of my motivation for pressing on, I used the church plant as the thing to keep me sidetracked. But I can promise you there were plenty of days and nights where we questioned, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to us? We've just made a commitment to serve you and to plant a church, and we don't even know how that's supposed to look. And now you take our babies? But as we kind of grew, two years later, we got pregnant and we had Sophie. I'm telling you that if we'd have had twins, Sophie probably would have never been here. And so I can see God's hand moving. And I can see God's grace. It's evident. And that's not just one moment in my life. And I'm sure you've had something just as monumental in your life and moments where you question and you even just wanted to curse God. But as you see time pass, you, you realize that He is working all things together for good. Which is why I want us to go to Romans 8. Don't leave John yet, so make sure you're holding a finger there. Romans 8. Now, you'll probably notice a theme here. None of these texts are new to us. Because what we find in Romans 8 is even that in the greatest misunderstandings and the hardest moments of our life and the greatest moments of questioning, God gives us assurance. Romans 8 chapter, Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Now, before I read it, the beginning of the book of Romans is Paul just simply laying out how bad we are. That we are hopeless in and of ourselves. But that there is hope in Christ. That there is hope in the gospel. And then we land in Romans 8, and Paul writes this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law, which was weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is, as a man, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Remember, Jesus on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Remember, we are all sinners, and the wages of sin is death. And so to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, God lays down His Son, who walked not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. We can only comprehend what we see in the world and, and what we want the world to be and what fits our selfish desires. But those who live according to the Spirit, that is those who have trusted in Jesus, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Flashback to last week. Verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I don't know what Bible you're looking at, what version you're reading, but I doubt there's an asterisk there. That says, unless you do this, this, and this. It ends with a period. Cannot please God. Verse 9. You, however, speaking to Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back in the fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. That's an interesting line, right? That's not the gospel you're hearing on TV. Verse 18. We'll save that for another day in time. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now this is Paul, who had before now written to the Corinthians and cried out to God three different times for God to remove the thorn in his flesh. Now we don't know exactly what that is. Um, there's a whole host of theories, but he had cried out to God three different times specifically, God, heal me from this. If you heal me from this, imagine the work I could do if I didn't have this to hold me back. Only to have God say, my strength is perfected in your weakness. And this is this Paul who's saying, for I considered that the sufferings of this present time, and, and not only that, but Paul had been stoned, people had tried to murder Paul, he had been in prison. I consider that, not, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And here's our assurance. And we know, definitive statement, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who was raised and who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So... Who then, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake? We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. And neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as the disciples were told that, just like Peter was told that they would understand later, we will gain understanding later as well. They wouldn't understand completely until Jesus is crucified, buried, and then raised three days later. And we wait eagerly for the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is our hope. We hope for what we know to be true, but we haven't seen it yet. And so we eagerly wait. Longing for the day where we stand before our King. Glorified. God has set us apart. He has called us. He has redeemed us. And now we simply wait to be glorified. And as our life progresses and we go through things and we question God and we get older and we look back and we see God's hand orchestrating every single step, we rejoice with a joy that is Inexpressible and filled with glory. Because it's then that we fully see the amazing grace of Christ. But in the meantime, we live by faith, we trust in the plans of God, and we rest in the goodness of God. Because He's worth it. He's worth listening to. He's worth trusting. He's worth resting in. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the example of Christ was to show that He is the only one who can make us clean. And it's in Him that we completely rest in. It's in Him that we completely trust in. I've done it again. Good grief. Number three, call of Jesus. 
verse 11 through 17. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet, he put on outer garments and resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. See, before we can understand the call of Jesus, which is about where we're about to be, we we need to be reminded of the role of Jesus. And to do that, we need to see that Jesus' purpose in coming in the flesh was to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, the Savior for the sins of His people. So, verse 11, then it's clear. Judas' betrayal wasn't a shock to Jesus. He knew all along what was about to happen. Again, verse 11, for he knew who was about to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Judas had played a good role for 11 years. He he was an integral part of the inner circle of God, and yet he had never trusted in Jesus. And Jesus is the only one that knew that. Because it is Jesus who is the author and perfecter of faith. And when we understand Jesus' role as the substitutionary atonement for our sin, the the sacrificing Savior, then we can understand the call of Jesus. And that's exactly what we see in these verses. So Jesus, after washing their feet, then asks asks them, Do you understand? Because this wasn't, again, about Jesus washing their feet. This was about Jesus becoming the substitutionary sacrifice for them. Laying himself down for the good of his elect. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Please turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Please turn there. To be fair, I didn't mark any of my pages, so I had to turn them too. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm only going to read verse 21 this time. Oh man, this is good. If you have to remember one verse that embodies the gospel of Jesus, it's this. For our sake, sinful people, He made Him, that is God made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, So that in him, Jesus, we, the sinner, might become the righteousness of God. God allows Jesus to come in the flesh, the embodiment of sin, then to bear the sin of his people to fulfill Isaiah 53.10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he destroys his son. And this is what we call the great exchange. That all of the righteousness of Jesus is exchanged for all the filth and the sin of all of his people on the cross. That's our righteousness. Therefore, in verses 14 and 15, we find this, that those who trust in Jesus for salvation are then to lay themselves down for the good of others, just as Christ has done for us. If you're here and you're a Christian, that means you have truly trusted in the saving work of Jesus. You, we have been set apart by God in Jesus, gifted with the Holy Spirit to be His workmanship. That means we are free in His grace to do what He has called us to do. No guilt in life, no fear in death. Galatians 5.13 I know it would have saved us some time if I would have just put this stuff up there, but I just wanted you to be able to see it. 
Paul writing to the church of Galatia. For you were called to freedom, brothers. I love that, like that boldness. Like you can imagine Paul as he's writing this. He's like preaching in his soul, and he's writing this letter to the church, and he's just trying to encourage them. Like, don't listen to the false teachers that are rising up. Like, who has bewitched you, foolish Galatians? And then at the end, he comes to this, and in verse 13 of chapter 5, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. So how do we serve? How do we serve? If we've been commanded to serve and we see the example of Jesus and the call of Jesus here in chapter 13 to serve, how do we serve? We're not gonna, I'm not going like to get a chart and make a bunch of lists. I'm going to give you two primary ways. First, we care for the physical needs of people. That is mercy ministry. We, we feed the hungry. We clothe the poor. We, we shelter those who are in need of shelter. We provide water. But secondly, what I believe Scripture says is actually the most important way to serve. We preach the whole counsel of God. The Scripture says that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the physical meeting of needs. Nope. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. But how then will they hear if there is no one to tell them? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. It is the constantly sharing of the gospel that brings hope. And I'm not saying the other things are not good. They are definitely good. But they can never be a substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the call of Christ is for us to sacrifice, to serve, to serve him and his people. And I'm going to tell you, we don't like to be told to be servants. We don't like to be told that we're going to lay ourselves down. But I am here to tell you that there is no greater calling, there is no greater joy than to lay ourselves down at the foot of the cross. And to echo what Isaiah says, here my Lord send me. The life of service, the life of sacrifice is not a life of ease. It's not a life of comfort. It's not a life of health. It's not a life of wealth. It's a call to take good news to the ends of the earth. To tell that Jesus is our only hope. And so we go to 2 Timothy chapter Second Timothy chapter one, verse six. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and self-control. Therefore, verse eight. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a what? A holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Jesus Christ before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus. Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And he goes on to tell them to guard the deposit that I've entrusted to you. So then church, look to Jesus. The author and the perfecter of faith the light of the world, the suffering servant, the king of glory. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your family. Trust him with your job, your, your physical needs, but more so trust him with your heart and rest in the never 
unending grace of the Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now to meet us here. To save those who need to be redeemed. To see that the one sheep is found. And encourage the rest of us to hear the good news and to be assured of our faith, which is rooted and grounded in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.